evening and welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. And it's my pleasure to welcome you here to the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco and to this evening's Points of View program. This is Wednesday, March 12th in 2014. The San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education is directed by Charles Chip McNeil and our adult programming is coordinated by Cecilia Beam. The Center for Dance Education produces a wide variety of programming. You're probably familiar with many of the things that we do, these points of view programs, the Meet the Artist interviews that take place on selected performances um, just prior to, the um, Ballet 101 program, the Talks on Dance, and that's coming up, and the next one is coming up very soon. All of this is laid out in this brochure that I'm hoping that you can pick it up in the lobby if you don't already have one. And of course, we produce the community matinees for children and our renowned dance in schools and communities out around the Bay Area. All of these programs, or most of them, are recorded for podcasting. And of course, I encourage you to go to the ballet's website, sfballet.org, where you can find these podcasts, as well as a wealth of information about upcoming events, about the company, about um, uh, past events, as well as future events. There are many, many very beautiful videos now available on the website. Um, if I could just direct you to, once you're on the homepage, go to Interact and then click on listen, and it should be pretty obvious where to go to hear the podcast. So I'd also like to welcome anybody who might be listening to a podcast at a future date. Well, one more little piece of housekeeping. As you know, we really like to invite your questions at the end of our more formal presentation. And our process now is to ask you to come to the mic that is at the foot of the aisle, right here in front of the orchestra pit. And in anticipation of that, because we've discovered that it's kind of awkward sometimes to climb across people in the um, rows of seats, to anticipate your question and make your way to the center aisle. Or you can even come down to the side and across the front a little more easily. Um, so be, be thinking ahead about that. Well, this evening our focus, of course, is on the ballet Cinderella. And my partner this evening is San Francisco Ballet's music director, Martin West. I'm delighted to Good have evening. you with us, Martin. And, of course, he will offer insights into this fantastic score. Um, we also have in the pit with us, and I don't know if we can actually see him, if he waves, you can see him, uh, company pianist Michael McGraw, who will provide the exceptional treat of live music <clears throat> to assist Martin in his comments. Um, I want to start with just a little bit of context for, for the program, for, the, for your evening. Um, you have very excellent program notes in your program book. And I require you to read the notes when this 
program is finished and during the intermission so that you will have all of the background information that you might need. So I'm not going to duplicate all of that. Um, Christopher Wielden has chosen to tell the Cinderella story a little bit differently. If you're familiar with the other balletic versions, and there have been many, but more popular would be the um, Sir Frederick Ashton version, the Ben Stevenson version in this, com in this country, uh, the 1973 Lou Christensen Michael Smeowen version, which was filmed, the Disney animated classic, you'll find this one different. If you're familiar with the original folk tales and fairy tales of the um, 17th century writer Charles Perrault or the 19th century Brothers Grimm, you'll be less surprised to learn that in Wheeled in Cinderella there is no fairy godmother, there's no pumpkin coach, and there's no clock that strikes midnight. What he does have is a tree. And this is not just a piece of scenery. This is an essential character in the story brought to life by award-winning puppeteer Basil Twist. Twist's primary focus was to make the tree a character that would, in effect, dance. I'll give nothing more about the tree away. Let's look at a few of the images so you can picture this. Quickly, how many of you have already seen this production? very fair number. How many of you will be seeing it for the first time tonight? Also a good number. All right. Well, this is a hint. This is the Cinderella in the opening scenes, and you can see that she's ladling soup for her stepsisters. We don't know them as ugly stepsisters. They're just nasty stepsisters. Notice the um, dancer who is manipulating Cinderella, one of Christopher Wielden's um, devices is to use four fates, very much like Greek chorus, who appear throughout and assist her as she moves through her part of the story. Look at the incredible color, very vivid colors that the design team has chosen. The ballroom scene is just spectacular, and the music is even better when we get to that. Um, there's color and character and comedy. This is a great bit, and there's comedy in the music. A lot of light. Uh, yeah. A lot of comedy. We'll get to that, too. Um, the beautiful Cinderella as she appears at the ball. The beautiful Cinderella with the prince as they're beginning dance their attraction. The stepsisters with the prince's friend, and that's a wonderful plot twist. You'll enjoy that. Characters, it is a fairy tale after all. We do have the shoe, the lost slipper, and the prince has to go around trying the slipper on to see if it fits. And of course, a wedding. So with that, I will say that Christopher Wielden did choose to use the 
lovely atmospheric Prokofiev score written by Serge Prokofiev in the early 1940s, right after the success of his ballet, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Martin, that's your cue. So, <laughs> will you just start by saying how this score came about, and it, it really came on the heels of Romeo and Juliet, was commissioned because of the success of Romeo and Juliet, uh, yeah, uh, it, it, Prokofiev had a very hard time getting Prokof uh, Romeo and Juliet onto the stage. He wrote it uh, a number of years before it was finally actually produced, and uh, the, the only way he managed to get it uh, known at all was to extract the suites that are so often played now in the, mm -hmm. in the concert hall. And when they became incredibly popular, finally they decided to uh, put on that first production, I think, in the Bolshoi. Oh, no, it was, it was in, the Ch in the Czech Republic, I think, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, of Romeo. And, of course, that was a great success. So um, I don't know where the idea for Cinderella came from, whether it was just Bolshoi's idea or Prokofiev's. I I, sure. it, it started at the, um, in those days, Kirov. And he started to write it, and World War II was just messing everybody up. And so it was later that he finished it, and um, it was premiered at the yeah. Bolshoi. Right, he started it in 1940, and he actually uh, took a break in the middle of it to write uh, War and Peace, not, not the novel, obviously, mm -hmm. and the, the opera. And mm -hmm. then he finished it off in about 1944, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful, lovely score. If you just drop in on it, you say, mm, I can hear a little of Romeo and Juliet in that. But on the other hand, it's so different. Uh, yeah, for me, it's completely different, actually. Uh, it's still obviously by Prokofiev. You can tell by the, the, this, the, his own harmonic sense. But um, I think it's composed in a very different way. Um, just from a basic, basic start, I think um, I often talk about it being a dark score. And, and, and someone asked me, well, why does it make it dark? And I, I had to actually think about what the answer was then. So uh, I, had just, I asked Michael if he could help me just uh, illustrate something. Like in Romeo and Juliet, most of the music which tells the story comes back in it again and again. There's, there's, uh, Juliet has her own themes and there's a love theme. And all these are based on very simple ideas, simple scales. Uh, I can't even see Michael, but if he's there, Michael, if you could possibly play like the opening of where, uh, the young Juliet when she uh, arrives in, on the scene. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, as you see, that's just a, that's a C major scale, dum ba da ba da ba da ba dum, uh, and then all the tunes that are to do with in, in Romeo and Juliet are all based on simple uh, scales and arpeggios. Uh, the, the 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 theme when Romeo meets uh, Romeo meets Juliet for the first time. The, the madrigal, Michael, is also a, a very simple theme. And so on it goes. It's, 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 anybody could have written it, really. It, it's amazing that no one had written it before. <laughs> and then even, even the great love theme, uh, when the first signs of love, which is later on in the Madrigal, is also just a, basically an arpeggio. <laughs> and so on. So, um, it, it's actually a very simple mm -hmm. uh, device, you know. It's 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 young and it's uh, enthusiastic. You know, there's nothing nothing 
difficult about the music in that sense. Of course, throughout the ballet, he used other techniques to, to bring in other emotions. But all the major music, which is repeated over and over again, kind of the light motifs, you might, you might call it, is, uh, is based on just very simple themes. Now, in Cinderella, he went the exact opposite. So the, the very f for start off, every, every theme you heard then was in a major key. It's a happy key, it's forward looking. Even when Juliet dies at the end of the ballet, it's actually in C major. It's, uh, you know, this, uh, he uses a major key a lot. Whereas in Cinderella, it starts off in a minor key. The very first notes is Cinderella's, as it were, um, a lot, lot in life, what she's having to deal with at the moment. Just it starts off in, in G minor. Michael. Yeah, that bit. <laughs> Keep going. So if you just, if, you, if Michael just play that once more, and after the initial a leap forward, you hear this sort of tune that goes back and forth. Dee da dee da dee da dee da da. Very chromatic, not in a, based on any scale at all, leading us all the way around, making us feel very troubled about where we are in life. Maybe you could just play that once more, Michael. Here you go, round and round. Makes us feel very, very troubled, not not in the in a happy place. And even the 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 theme that eventually becomes the love theme for, for Cinderella, which happens in the overture, it, uh, it's it's a most wonderful melody. Uh, maybe Michael, if you could just play it from the C major section. So, thank you, Michael. So, if, without the beautiful harmony, if you could just play the melody, Michael, just the, just the right hand. Without knowing the basis of where we are, we still don't know where we are. You know, we're, we're sort of hovering around a sort of a tune all the time. And it was this kind of unsettling thing that I think Prokofiev was trying to get through the whole score. It's a sense of Cinderella not being settled. And I don't want to give too much away, and I don't want to talk about too much leitmotif so much, but even at only at the, the very few places where Cinderella is in her element, then Prokofiev eventually allows us to be in a, in a major key, in a happy place. Perhaps the first time is when she dances with the prince in, in the ball on their own, the big pas de deux, which uh, I don't know if you can find that quickly, Michael which it actually starts in, in C major, simply enough. It's a beautiful tune. Actually, if, if you... If, if, so thank you, Michael. Sorry, I didn't mean to stop you. Um, but if you listen to that theme once more, it's, it's, very, it's clearly derived from the love theme that we played you just before, the, the, uh, yeah. the Amoroso theme, as it were. It, just, it, has, it starts off with the major third coming down again. Uh, if you, just play it once more, if you would, Michael. See, this has an inner peace to it, you see. Even the, the whole pas de never really gets going. It's always it's in sort of an internal comfort level. It's, it, it does have a, a louder moment in the moment, but it, it basically is a quiet pas de deux, and, and uh, it's never uh, exuberant at all. And in the very end of the ballet, having heard the Amoroso theme many, many times. 
It's when Prokofiev finally allows the music to uh, resolve. Every time we have that beautiful thing we, we showed you at the beginning, it always ends in a chord which isn't satisfying. We're always left. We either go back to the minor key, we finish on, the, on, on, a, on a chord which doesn't actually resolve the piece of music. Whereas at the very end, Michael, if maybe you could play the last few bars of the ballet, you'll hear how, before he plays it, you'll hear how the harmonies underneath are sort of dissolving away from these complicated uh, chromatic harmonies and they dissolve away into this perfect C major, which is really the, f the first and only time in the ballet which we are finally at rest. Thank And then, so, so important is this, that he keeps repeating now the next four or five bars entirely in C major. You just hear all these scales. And the very last note is played by, by the tuba, the lowest instrument in the orchestra, settling us down into C major. Maybe, maybe there we go. So don't clap too early, else you won't hear that. <laughs> um. <coughs> that's just a very brief, yeah, that's just yeah. one aspect of the yeah. score which I feel very important is that uh, all the music that tells the story, and it's obviously more than the two themes that we just talked about then, is all based around harmony, you know, this, these, mm -hmm. these, these shifting harmonies and, and chromatic uh, tunes which are very hard to sing, by the way. Um, what I love about storytelling and using s the score to tell a story is that the different characters actually have their own themes and... They all have, yeah, they all do, the prince and, well, all the sisters. And so I'm thinking music. about the sisters and some of the, clearly when the uh, folks who were commissioning the score were talking to Prokofiev, they conceived the sisters as being comic. Because in my mind, all of their music accompanies it comedy. It's definitely com comic, yeah. Uh, Michael, if you got the... the well, it's actually, as Chris has it, as a stepmother's theme, mm -hmm. the, the, thing, the, um, the D major variation, but this is actually f written for uh, uh, one of the stepsisters. It's, it's very funny. It's, it's a very clumsy piece mm -hmm. of music. Uh, I think originally the, the idea was that she was just a very clumsy uh, mm -hmm. lady, but in uh, Chris's version, she's actually drunk, which makes it even funnier, I think. <laughs> uh, but you'll see that uh, you can't really recreate it on the piano, but uh, the, the orchestration there is incredibly clever as well. He uses awkward parts of the instruments to, to play, and then he uses uh, the ponticello on the, on the strings, which is just sort of a nasty sound, which is that everything just adds to the sort of feeling of, oh dear, it's just, let's get on with this and get out of it. I was going to ask if there were insider jokes. Sometimes composers do that when they're either writing a commission or they're telling a story. Um, I'm not sure about insider jokes. I know that uh, Prokofiev in this particular piece really experimented with uh, the orchestration. So, um, Michael, if you play the D-flat major waltz, this is another piece of, of where Cinderella and the Prince dance, and it's clearly, uh, it's in a major key, and it's, it's just an absolutely gorgeous piece of music. Just the opening of that. This is just before the end. Keep going, Michael. 
it's one of the most beautiful piano pieces I've ever heard in my life. Except it's written for the orchestra, of course. And it's written absolutely perfectly for the piano. Interesting. I think I'm pretty sure Prokofiev wrote it at the piano. Most of what he wrote was at the piano. But when he transferred it to the orchestra, he, he used the orchestra in very new ways. Of, of He passes the tune from uh, section to section. And he uses... Um, interesting mixtures of instruments as well. He'll have the piccolo with the violins on a low instrument, which is just a very different uh, sonority and feel to it. He uses uh, um, uh, the sidrum for in a, in a very, uh, which is usually kind of a military thing, but uh, in, a, in a very warm, beautiful, loving piece, and, you know, just as a color. There's all sorts of, he uses a percussion quite a lot. If you look over to your right-hand side, you see the percussion is uh, very full tonight of all these instruments. Um, he used use a lot of different instruments there. We have five percussionists on tonight because there's a lot of percussion, but most of it's very subtle. You know, it's not uh, out there. No. Uh, it's not like a. Uh, it's the, the main feature, but they're all used as colours of the instrument. He uses the bass drummer an awful lot to colour these the orchestra's sound, which again gives it a kind of a dark, muffled feeling. We never it never comes. It's always a bit murky when they play. Um, one of the things I did observe when I saw the performance last night was, is there a fuller orchestra in general? Are there more instruments than you might on an average repertory program? Uh, well, <laughs> it's... Just felt, maybe it's the music. Uh, it is, we have a, a, just a few more string players to counteract the bigger percussion section. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we, but the woodwind section is, is a, a generally... Mm -hmm standard size, it's triple wind, which is a bit bigger than we maybe normal, but it's not really, the brass is basically the same. I think actually this, the orchestra is smaller than it, than it is for Romeo and Juliet, in terms of how many players you actually have mm. to have. Um, but for me, compared to Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet is, uh, well, I said before, it's, it's, it's youthful, even though it's only written five or six years before, it's, it's exuberant and it's just lush and gorgeous. And Cinderella has all those attributes as well, but it's also much more sparse at times. Um, it's much more. It's much more difficult to play than Romeo and Juliet, just because um, it's uh, it's more intricate, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, what's when you see the the music for Cinder for Prokofiev on the stand? If you're part uh, for Romeo and Juliet, it's fairly obvious what you know that what part you're playing within the section. If you've never played it before, if you've never heard Cinderella, then the part doesn't give you the, all the information that you really need. And it takes a lot of time to put these things together with the orchestra. It's, uh, it's a bit like playing Mozart. You know, it's just very, very delicate stuff. One of the things I associate with a Prokofiev ballet, I mean, well, the music, but then, of course, the stories that are being told, is that there are, you've talked about delicacy and you've talked about individual themes. There's some really grand, full-on music. And I'm thinking of the great in... in um, Cinderella, the waltz, the ballroom waltz. Well, there's also the in, the, in, the, in the ballroom, there's two major works, mm -hmm. two big works. There's, a, there's the mazurka. Uh, Michael, can you play the mazurka? That's the, it, starts the, it starts the second act, or at least it does in this production. It's a big uh, E major in, uh, uh, exuberant piece where everybody's dancing. <laughs> Thank you. So you see, I mean, as you'll notice, that was all in E major with lots of scales. But my point being that before is that that doesn't tell a story. 
that is just pure dance. Yeah, yeah. So we, the, Prokofiev doesn't allow you to spend the whole evening in this do doom and gloom. Right. He lifts you out and then it mm -hmm. when takes you back when you need it. And the other, the other major work in the second act is, is, uh, is the big waltz where Cinderella meets um, uh, the prince. And now this is another really dark number. It's, 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 uh, it is a lovely piece, but it even, even this has this very chromatic mm -hmm. feel to it. Maybe you could just play the, the beginning of the, where the theme comes in with the waltz, Michael. Even in that first mm -hmm. what, th 20 seconds of music, we must have gone through about 10 different keys. I, don't, I, haven't, I didn't ask him to, about this, but Michael, could you play that without the tune? See, and just play. Just goes nowhere, doesn't it? You know, it's just going it's all over the place. It's, it's incredible, and and Prokofiev's right. This this theme, this beautiful. You, you want to go home singing it, but if you try singing this, I think you'll do yourself some damage because <laughs> it it goes it goes up to an incredible wide range. Maybe now, Michael, we just play the the tune on its own. There's two octaves already. Yeah. Thank you. So you know that's a two and a half, two and a half octave leap. That's as much as most people's voices can 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 cope with. It's incredibly, you know, it's 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 not singable music. Even though you go thinking that's a lovely tune, isn't it? You must be able to sing that one. Uh, a lot of Prokofiev's uh, tunes do that. He writes in such a way that you think it must be singable, but it's not. But Romeo's full of those as well. I was just going to have a personal request. Could mm -hmm. we get Michael to play? Eight or sixteen bars, full on, sort of toward the end of the waltz. Oh yeah, just After, because the, the men are so towards the end, Michael. Yeah, he's very quick. He's a real ballet pianist. See, that's a, that's, the, the waltz is quite a long piece, for, especially for ballet. It must be four or five minutes long. And uh, it's episodic. You know, the, that theme comes back a lot. Mm -hmm. But every, every, between each of those statements of those themes, there's different, there's different uh, uh, things come in. There's, um, and Prokofiev uses incredible different textures. It always adds to this fact that this, the world isn't settled yet. You know, in the first production I ever conducted of this, we, we uh, Michael Corder's production, he had the f he had all the the, the spring fairy and the the winter mm -hmm. fairy all coming in, joining in, and and he used the music to depict them coming in. It's like they're all trying to evolve themselves. It was a real dreamland world. It wasn't. It's not real worlds music. You know. And whose version was this? Again? Michael Corder. It was for English National Ballet. Uh, oh, Boston right. Ballet did it as well. Ah. Um, many of us are probably familiar with the um, Christensen Smuin version that mm -hmm. was filmed, and uh, very um, just very straightforward English music hall storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, the 
there was there's a dance that actually they use um, oranges, and I think it's called the the the, or the oranges. Yeah. Well, we have that music in this one. Mm -hmm. That that has been used for a different purpose in this. I was curious if you have this. Let me back up. This is a production done both on San Francisco Ballet and on the Dutch National Ballet. And we've talked to a lot of the dancers about how that worked. But I haven't spoken to you about how that worked. How did you manage to work with... Amano, um, Amano Florio is a, yeah. was the music director in, in Holland. And with Chris like on coordinating what he was going to do when to different bits of the music. Uh, well, what happened, I think Chris met with Amano first because he just happened to be in, in Holland. And he went through his libretto with him and talked about what... Chris had a very clear idea, mostly what he needed from mm -hmm. the music. Mm -hmm. uh, just to you know, back up a little bit, um, when you hear the music today, you'll hear pretty much everything we play is as Prokofiev wrote it. So we reordered some of the numbers mm -hmm. and we extended a couple of numbers. We repeated a little section here and there. Or we, and we combined two numbers which were very similar into one. Uh, but basically what you, what you hear is what, what Prokofiev wrote. There's no big cuts here. There's no slashing and burning. So, uh, but he had a clear idea what he needed f uh, at each moment and a fairly clear idea what music he'd like for that. So he talked to, um, with Amano about that, and the Mano came up with his solutions of mm -hmm. how to, you know, to affect the changes mm -hmm. that he needed. At the beginning of Act Two, for instance, the Mazurka uh, doesn't really start with the Mazurka, but he wanted that, and he wanted the big, long version, and blah de blah. So we had to sort of dovetail two things together, but it's essentially the same music. So we just had to find the place where to splice it so it sounded right, and um, and then occasionally had to, you know change a note to make it fit in for the, the next sequence, but really nothing, nothing compared to what goes on often. Um, and then Chris came to San Francisco with all this set out with a big list of numbers and we had what it was. And then as he started choreographing and realizing that he needed more time to tell this story or he, he didn't need this number anymore because he didn't need that number to tell this bit of the story, he then asked me about, well, is there any way we could do this and do that? So then. I'd suggest something. So it's, it wasn't a collaboration between me and Namana, but we both put a little bit of input mm -hmm. into it. And mm -hmm. uh, was there any? Is there any added that bit of music that wasn't written for oh, no. Cinderella? Oh no, none at all. No. Because I I swear I hear some bits that I don't remember from the my most familiar version. Oh so uh, yeah, no, everything sure is by, everything is from Cinderella. <coughs> that, that question. It was the other choreographers who cut. Things. Oh, well, Ashton's version yeah. cuts out half yeah. of Act Three, basically, doesn't he? And mm -hmm. uh, I don't—I'm not familiar with um, Ben's version. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, what, the version I did, with Michael Cord was straight through. It was mm -hmm. every single bit of music from mm -hmm. top to bottom. So, anything—it was a bit of a shock for me when I first did it. But uh, you know, that's ballet for you. But the great thing about Chris's version is everything makes sense, and he uses all mm -hmm. the music very well. Where does where do these ballets fit in Prokofiev's career? Ooh, um, he must have been about 50-something when he wrote Cinderella. So mid-career? Yeah, well, he career? died in 1953. Di you know, he died on the same day as Stalin. He had a, he had a, a, coron uh, he had a, a cerebral hemorrhage. And, uh, of course, because Stalin died, no one mentioned Prokofiev dying at all. He, no he never got any press at all in Russia. Um, but uh, so um, it's, it's relatively late, I suppose. Mm -hmm. when he put, so it's only 10 years before he, he died. So... It's de definitely mature writing. Is Prokofiev known to musicologists for 
particular innovations as we point to other composers uh, and say, he's the one who did thus and such? Um, yeah. So, uh, I don't know if, I, I'm not a musicologist, I'm a conductor, so I can't tell you what they think. But Prokofiev did have, um, if you hear a piece of Prokofiev, you know it's by him. Mm -hmm. uh, just playing some of the excerpts we did, you know, you, you tell that he, he sits, his sense of harmony was inc incredible. He would add notes which really don't belong anywhere, but somehow it all works very well. Um, and he also, his, his orchestration is very much himself as well. Uh, the, uh, I just said before, you know, um, most, most composers will use the timps, the timpani, the big kettle drums, as as filler of sound, they'll roll the, the music, you know, so that gives a real richness to the sound. And in this piece, he doesn't use them in that capacity at all. He nearly always uses them as a tuned instrument. Uh, they do roll a little bit, but mostly that roll is given back to the bass drum. And the bass drum has no tuning. It's just a, a, a roll, a, thun, a thud, or whatever, a rumble. And it, so it gives a very different feel to the, the orchestration completely. Um, you know, even at the end of that beautiful, um, D flat major waltz, which we played you before, um, he just uses the bass drum as, at the end. It's just, it's kind of bizarre, even to me, that why he would do that, because you want to round it off with this, this gorgeous piece with some gorgeous music, but he doesn't. He finishes off with a, a very quiet thud. It's very theatrical. It's very theatrical. Yeah. Um, he also used a, a technique where he would he would have certain certain instruments hold on to notes, having in a tune. I can't show you that with a piano, unfortunately, but you, you can listen out for it. Um, where someone would play a note of the tune and, and keep it on, so it's like an echo of the sound. Mm -hmm. So they have this sort of thing going on all the time. Uh, it's difficult to describe unless you hear it. I wish I had the orchestra to, do, uh, to show you that. We're about to turn over to our audience the opportunity to ask some questions. So, <coughs> pardon me, if you've been thinking about questions you'd like to ask, now's your time to make your way down the center aisle to the mic here. And um, I'm not seeing anybody jumping up, but I'm hoping that somebody will. There's so much to know about this production and about conducting. And there's somebody who is, the there. there's somebody who's coming to oh. the mic. Can you make your way over to the mic? That would be great. While the first question is being asked. Right, go okay, go ahead. Could, uh, I don't know a lot about ballet, but can you tell me about how many different expertises does it take to put all these people together? I mean, you're the, the head guy, right? Uh, and, uh, no, I wish I was. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I know that there's a lot going on, and certainly there's more than one person that's responsible for all this, the, like the, the costumes and and all sure, that. So, sure. Anyway, well, whatever. a very quick over. Well, a very quick many over, head, over, many yeah. people in charge as you can think of, and I'll. Chime Aside in. from the entire admin department who uh, allow all these things to happen, just on the artistic side, you have the, the big boss, Hel Helgi Thomason, who is in charge of the, the whole company's artistic vision. And then un under him are his helpers, the ballet staff, of which we have about five or six, who help him to rehearse the dancers. And on the other side, there is me, the music director who runs the, the music side of the company. So my job is to, to make sure the pianists and the, and the orchestra know how to play their job. And I conduct the orchestra as well. On stage you see how many, 70 dancers or something, uh, which are all dressed in beautiful costumes, which is run by a costume department of another 
20 or 30, I would say. When they all, mm -hmm. each, each of those departments has their own head. And then on the stage, there's various members, the various crew members. And there's the, uh, the carpentry department, the props department, the electrician department, uh, probably forgetting some others, the fly people. Uh, all and the stage managers who are calling the show, telling people what to do when. It's it's th what you see on stage is only a tiny portion of what actually goes on to put on the the uh, uh, the production. So it's a very good question. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm sure I've missed oh, out yeah. loads and loads of people there. Um, when our programming is ended and you have a break before the performance starts, in the program book that you're given, turn to page 42, and it lists the San Francisco Ballet staff, and at the head of each section in bold print is the leader of that department. And all of those people um, are necessary to put, to put the production on the stage. And then if you go to the page before that, it's the ballet orchestra. So you'll get the names of all of the members of each of the sections of the orchestra. So good question. That's a good yeah. question. Yeah. Uh, how much, do you rehearse the orchestra separately? And how, how how, well, I can't say in minutes or days, but how much rehearsing do you do with the, the orchestra and the ballet? Uh, that's another good question. So um, the orchestra themselves actually rehearse relatively very little. The dancers will do, uh, I don't know how many hours of rehearsal to do this. They have to memorize everything and all, all, learn all the steps. The, the orchestra have their music on their stands. You might be able to see it, some of you. So for this particular run of Cinderella, we had eight hours of rehearsal time. The last time, uh, last year when we were learning it for the first time or for the first time in 35 <laughs> years or something, right. um, but I think three members of the orchestra had played it before, um, we had 12 hours. And that was before coming together with, with the, the stage. So after eight hours this time, we came together and we had one run through with the orchestra and the stage and with the whole technical thing going on as well. So. Uh, uh, and then we had a dress rehearsal. So actually we put this all together in 14 hours with the orchestra. It's, in, it's a remarkably quick, considering how much is, is going on. They're terrific, and oh. you are too. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to um, compliment the, the staff in general, the music staff in general, because you're all such consummate professionals that you can bring the background of experience in all of this extraordinary competence to a rehearsal and it gets done. Yeah, I'm not, it, it, I would like to probably add that the, uh, the vast majority of the orchestra will have practiced their parts before they come. So, uh, well, you know, uh, that's not well, always sure. the case. In many orchestras in the world, that will not all happen. Uh, if you go to, I would say, most of Europe, they, that's not what they do. They have a lot more rehearsal time and they basically learn it on the job and it's very slow sometimes. Uh, well, and just before we get to your question, also, you spend a great deal of time in the studio with the dancers and the choreographers so that when you get to the stage, you are that's, very familiar. Yeah, and that's the majority of my time, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is sitting in the studio, yeah. um, watching the dancers and watch, learning the choreography and how it should go, how I can make the music right for the dancers mm -hmm, yeah. so that I have an interpretation in my head for the orchestra ready to go. Yeah. Your question. Okay. I know that Prokofiev wasn't allowed to do Romeo and Juliet the way he intended it. It was modified. That I know some of it was re the way he intended it to reflect more of his religious beliefs about the afterlife. And then now he's experienced the war. Do you feel any political 
or any kind of his point of view in the, in the Cinderella score? Oh, that's a very good question. It's <laughs> um, a tricky question. It's a very tricky question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, you're absolutely right. Romeo and Juliet was conceived with a happy ending, and, uh, and uh, he was persuaded out of it before it was premiered. Um, whether, I don't know whether... I don't know. I, I, it's a very good question. I would love to know the answer. Do <laughs> um, you need insights, Mary? About that? Nope. Uh, Sorry about that. I do know that, that throughout the Soviet era, a lot of the artistic production was manipulated and that sometimes a second version was subversively created, but I can't be specific. But I think it was changed before. I think the original production didn't have the happy ending at all. It never got um, never used. But interesting enough, though, Prokofiev was a, a very... Uh, very clever with his music. He never wasted anything he wrote. I, I've often heard pieces of music by Prokofiev and thought, well, you know, this we recently discovered or something and realized that it's in another piece because he never wastes anything. So the music that was um, some of the happy ending actually went up into his fifth symphony. Um, so he never mm -hmm. wasted anything. I'm sure mm -hmm. he was okay about it. Okay, your question. I understand that um, your Concertmaster, I guess, and, and um, chief violinist Ray Mellon has been with the company for, as, a, as a violinist for 47 years or so and is retiring this year. What's the process for replacing someone that's a fixture of so many years? Uh, yeah, it's a very good question. I, I believe, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't, the orchestra itself has been in existence for nearly 40 years. Next year will be its 40th anniversary. And, what, and Roy, has been, Roy Milan has been the concertmaster since its inception. I think he did some concertmastering before the date. So I don't know the exact date that he started with the company. But yeah, he is retiring. And uh, uh, after an incredible long uh, and successful career. And uh, he's retired from our company anyway. Uh, and uh, so actually just next week we will be auditioning some potential players, and um, we've identified some some players that we want to listen to, and uh, we shall be listening to probably 30 or 40 of them next week in the, in the Opera House themselves. And from that, over about three days, we will be choosing a number. We're not quite sure how many yet. We will see uh, exactly what, who we want. And next year, during the season, we will be inviting the people who we're most interested in to come and sit and trial with us. And uh, again, it's very flexible because we don't know uh, quite who we're going to hear and how, how many people we'll like. But we'll invite them to come and do a, a set, a program set or two, depending on how many we have. And then if it's all clear after the end of the year, we'll pick someone. And if not, we will just con continue to invite them back or keep going until we find someone to fill the, the very large shoes that Roy has um, as, as planted on that on that chair down there. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. I would. I wish we had more time to go a little more into the fact that this orchestra is unique in ballet companies in the world, and to be the concertmaster of this orchestra is a fairly prestigious. We'd position. like to think so. Yeah, it is. We think so. <laughs> so this is going to be a significant hire. It's a very significant hire, which is why we're taking so long over it. Yeah, you know, we, we've been planning this for a, since, ever since Roy told us he'd, he wanted to, re to retire. So mm. it's, it's a big project. We are going to be taking the very last question. And so um, please. A quick question. Do you have a, a favorite uh, recording of Cinderella? Who would you suggest? 
I don't. It's the one I'm going to do in a few years' time. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't have any. I don't have a favorite. I don't listen to recordings, actually, to be honest. So of Cinderella. So I, I don't know. I know there's a few out there. There's Pletnev and Ashkenazi, uh, and mm. Previn did one a long time ago. Mm. But I, I, w I, w I haven't listened to them, so I don't know which ones. I'm sorry about that. Well, before you all jump up and run away, I do need to remind you of the choreography for that, which is we're going to ask you to exit as you came in over to your right, and those of you who are not holding tickets for this evening will be going off into the night, and those of you who are holding tickets will have to go back down the corridor through a ticket checkpoint, and then you can re-enter the auditorium through the main lobby. So now it's time for us to remind you that we will have our next Points of View program on April 2nd, which will feature the Shostakovich evening, which is going to be very exciting. We're looking forward to that. And of course, you will go to the website to catch all of the information about programming and to catch the uh, webca the um, podcasts of our interviews and programs. And with that, I can finally say thank you to Michael, who's been quiet now. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Martin, for another wonderful oh, evening and thank discussion. You. Enjoy this evening's performance.